Welcome to the Legacy of John Williams podcast. I'm your host, Maurizio Caschetto, and this is a new installment of LA Studio Legends, a series of talks with legendary Los Angeles session musicians who performed on hundreds of film soundtracks, including many by John Williams. My guest today is keyboard legend Ralph Grierson. Few other musicians in the world can be compared to Ralph Grierson. Born near Vancouver, Canada, he studied classical piano since a young age and then moved to Los Angeles in 1962 to study at the University of Southern California, where he got both a bachelor's degree and a master's degree in 1968. He quickly became very active in the lively Los Angeles musical scene, both as a live musician and as a recording artist working with top names such as Michael Tilson Thomas, Pierre Boulez and Aaron Copland, but also appearing as the featured solo artist on many beautiful recordings. Around the same time, Grierson started to perform regularly as a studio musician for film and television scores, becoming one of the best players in town and one of the first gold keyboardists for film scores. His resume is really impressive. Grierson performed in thousands of film and television scores, playing piano, organ and synthesizers for many legendary Hollywood film composers. John Williams, he performed from 1969 until 2001 on more than 40 scores, performing in films like Jaws and E.T. the Extraterrestrial. conversation, Ralph talks about his incredible journey as pianist and studio musician and his many collaboration with John Williams. He also talks about how he faced the life-changing injury that ended his career as a performer and brought him to explore new ways of artistic expression. Mm -hmm. 
I'm here with Mr. Ralph Grierson. Ralph, thank you very much for being here with me today on the Legacy of John Williams podcast. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you. You certainly don't need the introduction. I mean, a lot of the great musical lovers and lovers of film music uh, know your your artistry and know how much you know how much a great pianist and artist you are. But I'd love to 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 start our conversation talking about your musical background and formation. So how did you end up choosing music as a profession? And did you grow up in a musical family? None of my family were professional musicians, but my father was an amateur musician. His parents were in the Salvation Army in, in Canada, in the, in the prairies, because I'm, I'm originally Canadian. He started out playing a baritone horn. He was also listening to the radio and to records in the days of the early... Uh, big bands of Tommy Dorsey and, uh, and all of those. He was a mill worker uh, during the day. I began piano lessons uh, locally in a little town in New Westminster, British Columbia, and at, the, with, at the Callie Kirby kindergarten method, as I recall. Showed some talent, uh, I guess. I, I won some contests. Uh, my dad, who by then was, was playing casuals, you know, dances on the weekends. My dad took me to a rehearsal when I was about four and a half years old of quasi big band. I know the musicians from later years, they, it, they weren't great, but the sheer energy of a, of a 12, 13 piece band just blew my brains out. And that's the moment I think that, that I realized what music was for me. It wasn't until probably 40 years later, that a friend of mine, Emil Richards, who recently passed, a wonderful percussionist, also worked with John. Yes. A dear friend. Emil helped his friend, who had had a lifelong dream of hiring the Count Basie band. Uh, and Emil helped him do that by uh, putting together what he called uh, a night for musicians mm -hmm. in Los Angeles. And it was, there was a a little supper club in Glendale with a classics, classic 1950s supper club with the stage, with the red velvet curtains and the dance floor and the, the booths and everything. And he, they sold tickets to all the LA ex-Basie sidemen, the arrangers, you know, Quincy Jones was there, Henry Mancini, all the ex-players from Basie. And, and so here we are, it's this magical night. We're sitting down right in the set at a long table with Emil and the curtain was closed and there was just a big <laughs> a downbeat, the curtain opens. And I had a flashback to when I was four and a half years old hearing a big band for the first time. So, you know, I went home and I called my father, I thanked him. It was just, <laughs> I hadn't realized just how significant that moment was yeah. in my life. Yeah. It seems like, uh the things that we are attached or that strike us uh, when we are kids are the things that we keep constantly chasing even when we are adults, you know, if you know what yeah. I mean. Yeah. And trying to keep chasing that dream. It's something that keeps you alive in a way. Yes. So that, that, that began actually what became a very eclectic musical taste because while I was studying classical piano, my dad would would pick the brains of the piano players he was working with. And he came home and he taught me uh, all the chord changes and the standard tunes of the day. When I was about 13 years old, he had a, 
a little group that played at a supper club uh, just outside of Vancouver uh, that consisted of a pianist, a drummer, a uh, Hammond organist, and him on woodwinds. No bass player, the organ uh, played bass. Mm -hmm. And the woman who played the organ called in sick uh, one night at the very last moment. And that became my uh, beginning of playing professionally, playing commercial music, which basically supported me while I studied and went to school. It, it was, I had never played a Hammond organ. I didn't even know how to turn it on. Uh, <laughs> you know, it has a special starter motor uh, and everything. <laughs> and that became a kind of a, uh, a joke throughout my career, which was earn while you learn. Because during the, the 70s, before synthesizers uh, in the studios in Los Angeles, it was just like a keyboard explosion. Mm -hmm. There was a new keyboard, electric keyboard, almost every week. And Hollywood being Hollywood, always having had the latest uh, hippest sound, you would come to work at a session and there would be an instrument you'd never seen before. Uh, and the joke was, well, okay, how do I turn it on? Uh, <laughs> and you earn while you learn. So there were electric pianos, electric harpsichords, all these different Farfisa organs and Yamaha organs and uh, Roxichords and Nova chords. And, uh, it, it was amazing uh, how many instruments. Uh, and I never bought any of them until the day that uh, well, I did buy an electric piano. And in those days, because of all these instruments, there were many keyboard players mm -hmm. on the sessions. Yeah. One day I got to a session and there were a bunch of keyboards and one of them was an ARP 2600, which is one of the first, you know, like, like the Moog synthesizer. It was a small, compact, patchable synthesizer. Mm -hmm. And none of the keyboard players had ever seen it. And no one knew how to turn it on or get a sound. So I was playing with it. Uh, I got a sound out of the instrument, but I couldn't make it stop. <laughs> I, I had found an initial game. The composer was Pete Brugelow. Uh, we were doing a, a show at, uh, it was like a Hawaii Five O or one of those shows at CBS. I, I was designated to go and talk to the composer when he, he arrived about five minutes before the session. And I said, Pete, you've written for this instrument and none of us know how to play it. <laughs> uh, and Pete, Obviously, someone had said, hey, you need to have this instrument. He didn't know it either. He said, oh, just put it on the harpsichord. <laughs> so, and after that, I went out and I bought an ARP 2600, and that became my learning of, of synthesizers.
Let's move a little bit earlier in your career. I mean, uh, when you moved uh, from Canada to LA to study at the University of Southern California, so at, at that point, did you want to become a classical pianist or were you also interested in, you know, chasing other genre of, of, of type of work? No, I, I, I was probably of a beginning of a generation of musicians, which is very common now, mm -hmm. but was very uncommon then, in that I liked all kinds of music. Uh, and when I was in Canada, people told me, you know, you have to make a choice. You, if you're going to be a classical musician, uh, you can't play jazz, it's going to ruin your tone, you know. And the jazz musicians would say, you can't play that classical stuff, it's going to destroy your time, you know. <laughs> and then rock and roll came along, and I was 13 years old, and, and I liked that too, and everybody just threw up their hands, and they didn't know what to make of me. Uh, but that was what basically helped me have such a successful career in movies, because at that time, it was just the beginning of the end of having to hire a specialist to play every little bit. First of all, the studio musicians were expected to play everything. So you'd play yes. Chopin one minute, you'd play jazz the next, rock and roll the next. And I, I had grown up doing that. I put myself through school playing every conceivable, you know, ballet class, fashion show, uh, uh, bar <laughs> uh, gig. And so it, it was second nature to me. It was like, who do you want me to sound like today? <laughs> Yeah. early that I didn't want to be a touring classical musician. I, I wanted to have a family. I didn't want to be on the road all my life. And I, quite frankly, didn't think that was what my calling was anyway. I liked, I liked too many kinds of music to be able to specialize mm -hmm. and have maybe a half a dozen concertos and a couple of recital programs uh, to play. Of course. And then, and then and this is something essential, I think, in the life of a studio musician, because I already talked with other of your peers and colleagues like Jim Walker. And this is very common between people of your generation. You all had to be very, very you know, versatile, first of all, because you were asked to play in many different genres and right. also be very quick in learning something new, gearing up the new, the new stuff, the new technology and so on. So when you started playing as a studio musician for films and television, it was around the late 60s, right? Yes. Was that something on your radar, something that interested you and said, I want to play for, for movies and TV or was something that happened in some way? No, I, I pretty much, prior to coming to USC, I was planning on going to Juilliard uh, in New York because that's what, if you were a serious musician, 
that's what you did. You, you went to Juilliard. So I was all set. I had my winter wardrobe. I was ready to go. But I was studying theory and counterpoint with a woman who was getting her doctorate in the summers at USC. She started telling me about the people who were teaching at USC. Yasha Heifetz was teaching. Piotr Gorski was there. Uh, you know, the piano faculty with John Crown, Lydian Stuber, Muriel Kerr, Alice Ehlers, this Baroque specialist, Madame Koldowski was an accompanist. Uh, the opera department, Ingolf Dahl, uh, all these. It was a golden age at the yes. school. Yes. And I had, it's like one of the few times in my life where I got a glimpse of the future. Mm -hmm. uh, it's like I saw this, the future, and it was in Los Angeles. And overnight, I just said, from New York, I just said, no, I'm going to California. Uh, and, and I could see also, because I, of course, I was already doing recording work in Vancouver because the CBC radio and television was still doing lots of live radio shows. Uh, well, while I was in high school, going into Vancouver on the bus every day after school, playing rehearsal piano for a chorus line uh, in a nightclub for a dollar, uh, a dollar an hour beginning. And then later I got the job when I was, uh, just as I was beginning first year university, I began that and then the, the opportunity to, to get this job six nights a week uh, at the Cave Supper Club came uh, and I took it. And that led to then playing two or three live radio shows a week, uh, some, some television shows. So I was already, by the time I got to USC, because I took a year off uh, after high school before I went to, to USC, I was already a studio musician. So I knew that recording world. And, and I was looking at, and, and I also saw how the shift was happening from New York to Los Angeles. So New York had been a much more of a center for recording uh, than it was by the time uh, I got there. So yes, I, I saw the, the, the picture of that that would be the place where I would probably be able to do everything I wanted to do to have a small concert career, which meant, you know, I would travel a little bit, but just enough to, to be, you know, I was able to play with the LA Philharmonic and, and I, I played a lot of contemporary music at uh, a Monday evening concert series in Los Angeles. How I got into the studios, that was a major thing. I played the 1967 Ojai Music Festival where uh, Pierre Boulez was the music director. Mm -hmm. uh, and Michael Silson Thomas and I were two of the pianists in Stravinsky's Les Nos, working with Boulez. And we played some synthesizers to emulate owned Martineau's. And so uh, during the rehearsals, for Lenos, percussionist colleague of mine, who was a couple of years ahead of me in school, brought Lalo Schifrin to a rehearsal, introduced me, and Lalo began hiring me for some Mission Impossible sessions. Mm -hmm. uh, so he was one of the first composers. And then there was another uh, composer, Leonard Rosenman, yes. uh, who he did all the James Dean movies, yeah. uh, uh, was brilliant uh, kind of avant-garde composer. But he, at the time, I played a piece of his on a Monday evening concert that was for difficult piece for piano and electronics and a small ensemble. And at the time, uh, Lenny was also scoring a television series called Marcus Welby at Universal. Robert Young, I think was the actor. Leonard Roseman started hiring me for that. So, and through those two people, I met the contractors and that was a big, a big boost.
He also did a beautiful uh, recording with Michael Tilson Thomas. It was one of the very first uh, uh, recordings of the four-hand piano reduction by, of the, the Rite of Spring, right? It, it was the first recording, uh, absolutely. Uh, there, was, uh, <laughs> there was another uh, two piano team at the time. Uh, their names were Eden and Tamir. Word came out that they were going to record this piece. But Stravinsky was living in Los Angeles at the time, and I met Michael Tilson Thomas my second day of school at USC, and we studied with the same teachers, and we bonded, we became friends then. And Lawrence Morton, the Monday evening concerts, was a, a close friend of Stravinsky's, and on his Monday evening concert series, uh, had already had uh, 11 Stravinsky premieres, uh, and he was trying to catch up to Diaghilev's 12, I think, or something. He actually surpassed Diaghilev before the end of it with, with one more. But he asked Stravinsky, he, he, he discovered this forehand version, and that's how Debussy uh, had heard the piece originally, Stravinsky and Debussy played it. And he asked Stravinsky, he said, I, I see this piece has never been performed. Would you mind if I performed it on a Monday evening concert? And Stravinsky's answer was, why not? I wrote it. <laughs> so, so we had performed it on the Monday evening concert. And then word came out that this other uh, team was going to record it. And Lawrence was not going to have that. So he connected us with the producer at Angel Records, George Sponholtz. And we, we recorded it at Capitol Records, got it out. And our, our recording came out three months before Eden and Tamir's recording. <laughs> so you have the very first, the world premiere. I mean, <laughs> right. Recording. Yeah, and actually, it, it's, it's a forehand piano piece, but at Stravinsky's suggestion, we played it, we recorded it on two pianos uh, because he said it, it would be better for the stereo. <laughs> <laughs> That is around 1968, 69, yeah, right? Yeah. The same year, late 60s. So you played, uh, I mean, I checked your, your very long list of credits of uh, scores you did with, with John Williams. And your first credit, correct me if I'm wrong, playing for him was a film called The Reavers from 1969. And it is also probably John Williams' first very major score that put him on the map as a composer, because before that, he was doing mostly comedies or, you know, smaller stuff. Right. And he did a lot of adaptation work as well. But that was the first very big score that put him on, on the map. So do you have any recollection of that specific score? I, I remember where I was. It was Warner Brothers on the old Warner Brothers stage. But I seem to remember that I had already recorded the score with, I think it was Lalo Schifrin. And 
they had thrown out Lalo's score. Uh, and so this was the second time I was playing this movie <laughs> with, <laughs> with a different composer. And it was an amazing experience. I was fairly new, you know, at that time, so I wasn't aware that this happens quite often. So I remember being there on Warner Brothers, and I remember it being, being very special. And I had known of John Williams because he was Henry Mancini's piano player early on in Peter Gunn. Uh, to, to backtrack a little bit, that when, when I made that decision to come to LA from New York, there were three other reasons that helped me make that decision. One of them was that Andre Previn, who was a brilliant pianist, a classical musician, who was playing recitals with Edgar Lusgarden in Los Angeles, but he'd released an album with Shelley Mann, uh, the jazz soundtrack of My Fair Lady, Shelley Mann and Le Leroy Vinegar was the, the bass player then. That Peter Gunn had come on, and here was now a really fresh way of scoring uh, and, and interesting uh, music for, for television. And another pianist, Claire Fisher, who's a famous jazz pianist who's no longer with us, but also was a good friend and colleague, produced his first album called First Time Out. And it was a form of freeform jazz that, that went beyond traditional jazz and broke down boundaries also. So it was like, here are people who are doing things that I want to do. I don't want to be pigeonholed into one kind of thing. And it's all happening in Los Angeles. Uh, so uh, uh, I guess that's when I first became aware of John Williams. Uh, he was Johnny Williams. He was Johnny Williams in those days.
and he was a session pianist himself. You know, before yes, starting yeah. his career as a composer, uh, he was playing for Alfred Newman and Harry Mancini and Dimitri Tiomkin and so on. Yeah. And so he stepped up the ladder one bit at a time, you know, before coming onto the podium. So how much yeah. important from your perspective was that experience for him, you know, being a studio musician? Oh, yeah, I, I think it was extremely important. But, but here's somebody who's, whose talent is so enormous. Uh, but the fact that he, he was a, a musician and, and also a studio musician, completely aware of what that mentality has to be. I mean, what kind of pressures you were under. The, the joke was, you know, 90% boredom, 10% sheer terror. And you never <laughs> knew when the sheer terror was going to strike yeah. because <laughs> you would have music. And the fact that you're in a business, one of the few professions where a red light means go. You know? yes. <laughs> and so I think it was very valuable for him to have had that because he could, he could identify with, with the musicians. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they, they, of course, uh, could do the same with him. He was one of them yeah. uh, in the beginning. Yeah, so you started playing with him uh, late 60s, early 70s, when he was already a very respected and talented professional of the field, of course, but he wasn't yet the John Williams that would become a few years later. So you saw him kind of growing and then finally exploding into stardom. Uh, so do you remember what were your first impressions of him, both as a composer and as a conductor, you know, year by year? Because you also played on Jaws, right? I did. Yeah. yeah. And that, that was a pretty big score that finally became the John Williams that was, you know, the John right. Williams that we know of today. It was clear from the beginning that the music was a cut above much of the music we were playing. He was a better conductor than 90% of the, the other musicians. Uh, there were very few composers who were really great conductors, but because it was their music, it was still preferable to have them on the podium. And we had click tracks often, which meant that you didn't have to be a great conductor anyway. But uh, the trick was with click tracks was and, and how the best of the studio musicians got to the point where you could have a click track and still play as if it wasn't there, you know, and orchestras just know, knew how to make music around and in spite of click tracks. <laughs> Otherwise it would have sounded like a robot, you know.
I have an interesting Jaws story. Yeah, uh, tell me about it. <laughs> uh, that may, maybe you've already heard about it because the brass players may have told you, but uh, you'll recall the May Jaws theme is is a really major tuba solo. Oh yes, besides the the ostinato on the strings, there's a big ba ba bong and it goes very, very high. Know, yeah, it's very difficult uh, tuba play part. And we were at Fox Studios uh, the first day of of the sessions for the Jaws movie. And we're ready to start. And Tommy Johnson, who is the tuba player, is nowhere to be seen. And it's before cell phones in those days. We don't know what's happening. It turns out it was a big rainstorm and that there was a huge traffic accident on the freeway. Tommy arrived 30 minutes late to the session. Nobody is late for a scoring session. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you don't get too many second chances. Mm -hmm. He walked in 30 minutes late, opened up his book, and there was that solo to play. Oh, my. <laughs> and he played it brilliantly, you know. First take? Yeah, yeah, well, I don't know how many takes we did. John would always rehearse. But everybody was like, oh, my God, what a thing to walk into uh, <laughs> when you just and you can imagine being on the freeway and think, oh, my God, I'm not going to make it. I'm late. And, I'm, and you walk, that's how you walk into the, this major solo of your career. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And something that would be, well, of course, he didn't couldn't know that, but it would be heard by you know billions of people for so many years. That's right. Let's talk a little bit about how the the section is built when you work with John. And so, of course, a lot depends about the music itself you're going to record and how much keyboard work requires. But, I mean, if there's a need for electric piano or organ or, or synth or something like that. So how the work is split between the, the, the personnel? I mean, who decides who will play piano or celeste or synth or something like that. Is that the composer's call in the case of John Williams? John would, would decide who his pianist was always. Uh, and when I first started, I think it was uh, Artie Kane had been John's pianist. He was the generation before me, and he was probably one of the, the first generation where, okay, you have to be able to do everything. And I just came in on the tail end of that and, and took it farther. But Artie was, was instrumental in, in helping my career in that we worked together on a movie with Lalo Schifrin called The Hellstrom Chronicles. Mm -hmm. It was an interesting score because it was all about bugs and, and what happens at the end of the world. The, the only people who survive are the cockroaches, you know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and uh, so Lalo wrote this really interesting avant-garde score with inside the piano and and mm -hmm. two pianists, and so that's where I met Artie Kane. We spent three days together, and then Artie started recommending me. Uh, so yes, we played together a lot, and then Artie was becoming a, com a composer also, and I think he kind of just passed the keyboard chair on to me. Uh, and in the beginning, John didn't really have a lot of keyboards. It was usually just a pianist, and then I think I was there as because he had an electric piano or another keyboard. 
Uh, and it wasn't till quite a bit later, I'm trying to remember what, what movie it was. My, my daughter, fortunately, I, I didn't even have a list of everything I'd played. I had a list of all the movies I <laughs> yeah. played. I didn't remember which ones of John's I played. So she made me a list. 47 movies. I can't believe it. <laughs> it's amazing. I mean, almost everything recorded in LA up yeah, until a few years time. ago. Right. to remember when I made the shift because at some point I, I got more and more into synthesizer and electronics and it wasn't until I think um, maybe the Witches of Eastwick or the Accidental Tourist where, where we used uh, he first of all he hired Ian Underwood who was uh, a brilliant synthesis uh, and then following in Ian's footsteps and a few others I got into the electronics too because I got fascinated by everything and started getting elect. And, and I think I made the switch to, to be a, a synthesis for John. And that's when Chet Swiatkowski became uh, the principal pianist. You know, of course, Ian Underwood from the 80s all the way through uh, was also playing synth. And then Randy Kerber became uh, involved, is still quite close to John now, I think. Uh, Randy Kerber and uh, Gloria Chang are basically the principal keyboard players for John now. All wonderful musicians. So <laughs> I, I can't imagine John not having great musicians.
fact that you session players had to be very quick on you know on playing everything on the spot and uh, sometimes you, you open the book and maybe you have something like you said whoa I have to play a very difficult part on the spot and I didn't have time to rehearse anything and so on. So do you remember any particularly challenging parts with John that he asked you to, to perform? Well, the most challenging one uh, was the end credit piano solo for E.T. I was at Fox a few weeks before that scoring session doing something, you know, like a, a mash. We did a lot of television uh, at Foxwell and John at that time had us because Lionel Newman was still music director and John had a, a an office where he wrote uh, in the, at the Fox lot. So during a 10 minute break, John walked on the stage and you know, said, hello, how are you? Uh, he said, are you going to be with me in a couple of weeks? Uh, I said, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I had no idea what it was. He says, oh, great. He says, I'll write something for you. So never heard another word. Uh, I got to the first of a three-day scoring session for E.T. By this time, we're, we're scoring at uh, the MGM Sony uh, studio. I get on the stage, and like you say, you go through the book, you look ahead, and everything. Yeah. And then I see this, what looks like a, a Chopin etude. <laughs> <laughs> and so I said, whoa, I better look at this. So I'm secretly just doing an every 10-minute break. I'm I'm scuffling a little bit. And finally, at the lunch break, I went up to John. And, and I, I'm thinking to myself, this may be the time when, when I don't make it. You know, I may not be able to do this. You know, I'll be able to play the notes, but to make music with it, this is hard. <laughs> I said to John, I said, John, I see you've written me something. Thank you. I said, are we going to do that today? He said, oh, no, we'll do that Thursday. And I went, oh, thank you. <laughs> So you had a few days of, you know, you, you could catch your breath. Days, I took it home and practiced it and, and, and it was fine. Of course, it's well loved and remembered for, for you know the, the, the beautiful flying scenes when the kids go with the bikes over the moon and they escape and the chase. You have this beautiful symphonic poem playing and giving you this uplifting spirit. But a lot of the score has very quiet parts as well. You know, besides piano, you also play Celeste or organ or something like that. I remember playing Celeste. Don't know if I played the pipe organ then or not. Occasionally, there was still a pipe organ on the Fox lot in those days, so it wouldn't have been there for ET. No. Okay. I did play pipe organ once with John, but not on that movie. And so you, you're basically 
instructed to to perform in, in those instruments. And do you remember any other case when John gave you a prominent more or more solo like part? You know, in well, there, there was a lot of uh, fairly challenging stuff in Jaws, uh, as I recall. good um indiana jones witches of eastwick he, he also used the piano and synth together many times you know playing simultaneously right yes yes and i think it was in the accidental tourist where he actually had three synths and piano and we were all often doubling uh, with different colors together That's very interesting because it, it creates a very special atmosphere in that sense. He he did he did it several times in scores like the Accidental Tourist or the other one. Always, I think it was. There right. was a lot of electronic and solo piano. JFK or Jurassic Park, where he, he used a lot more synth, a lot more electronics. But there was a lot of piano in Jurassic Park, as I remember, also. 
one of them jumped out and that was Stanley and Iris. So did you perform piano in that? Yeah, I think there's a lot of piano in that movie. There is, absolutely, yes. It's a beautiful, sweet uh, drama film with uh, Robert De Niro and uh, Jane Fonda. There is a very, very sweet score with a lot of piano solo, lots of uh, woodwinds, you know, very, very small, intimate kind of score, like The Accidental Tourist as well, which right. are some yeah. of my favorite, personally, scores by John Williams, because of course I love the, the big, brassy, uh, popular scores, but, you know, I find that he puts some very extra special touches when he works on those smaller movies. Oh yes, without question. Many John Williams scores there is always a consistent piano part and even if it's not a solo or a concertante type of uh, writing, use piano to embellish lines or to double maybe uh, something in the woodwinds or creating an atmosphere. So since you're also a composer, you study composition, you are a composer as well. So how do you see uh, the treatment that John does with the piano as an orchestration tool? Oh, well, he was, he was clearly the best orchestrator, but he also had the best orchestrators working with him. Uh, Herbert Spencer and, uh, you know, and later John Neufeld and all these people who, but every one of them would testify that, that John's sketches were pretty much complete. I never thought of myself as a composer until I was forced to many years later. So uh, I appreciated it all from the musician's perspective, primarily. His dramatic sense, his ability, first of all, to conduct uh, and his sense of time and everything. It was just clearly really special from the beginning.
when you had to perform synth parts for him, does he usually ask for a specific sound or maybe he just tells you, you know, I need some, you know, this kind of color and you, you come up with, uh, with solutions or proposals and so on? How does it work? I, I wish I could remember some of his words that he write because with very few exceptions, there would be no dialogue as to any sounds. You would be responsible for creating something. And there would be a written on the part, it would say magical or, or majestical or glorioso or all these words that John would come up. And that's what you were supposed to kind of create a sound that would match his word. And it was a <laughs> challenge at times. And because he, you know, he never got into synthesis himself, electronics. He really didn't have an awareness of what it took to, to like program, put things together, mid-divide. So inevitably, I would have a part and I'd be trying, scrambling to get a sound. And I, I would be creating the sound during the first rehearsal or the second rehearsal. And the first time I would play the part would be on the take. <laughs> <laughs> and... Uh, so it's really learn as you go. You know? Oh, yeah. <laughs> it, it, was, it was awfully uh, frantic at times. And John was, was, was kind of just, he just, everything worked always, so he didn't care. You Sometimes composers really want to control every single aspect of their creation and so on, and they probably do. But sometimes maybe someone like John Williams is also open yeah. you know, to let the musician no, do your did. part. <laughs> That's it. He wrote it, and, and that was your job to come up with something that, uh, that pleased him. And it was, uh, it was intimidating at times, but it was, it was a challenge, like, like everything of, of working with John. And... Uh, uh, you either, you either swim or you sink. <laughs> <laughs> and do you have any maybe more special recollection about some of the work you did with him and maybe some experience that stuck with you more than others? Well, I guess, I mean, I have to tell this story as about, again, the end credit of E.T. At the 20th anniversary of the movie and to celebrate the release of the DVD, we were playing the soundtrack live to picture at the Shrine Auditorium in Los Angeles. Uh, Spielberg and the cast or everybody there, 85-piece orchestra with John. And at the end of the six-hour rehearsal the day before, uh, I played the end credit piano solo. Uh, I said, oh, that's going to be fine, you know. It was pitch black. We were playing to picture. I stood up, took a step. They had left out a riser. I took a step and landed uh, three feet down on my wrist and shattered my wrist and ended my career. 
uh, it took about five years before I could get the feeling back in these two fingers, and I still have pretty limited range of motion. Uh, and that's when I became a composer. That that was basically the end of your career as a pianist. That that's uh, so that's that piece becomes significant to me for oh many my. ways. It was the last thing that I played professionally. <laughs> how did you did you cope with that? I mean, how... I I jokingly tell people that it was a piece of cake, a couple of years of psychotherapy, and everything was fine. But realistically, that's that is what it took. I I did hand therapy three to five days a week for almost two years, trying to, you know, get the feeling back uh, in the nerves or whatever. Uh, and I did psychotherapy because it took that long to basically separate uh, who I am from what I did. That was a huge part of my identity. I was, uh, it was right at the peak of my career and uh, it, took, it took time. In retrospect, having done that, I was about five years away from looking ahead and saying, you know, how many more times can I prove that I can read better than anybody else? Uh, how much, how many more times am I going to do this? You know, composers like John, uh, Randy Newman, James Horner, and Jerry Goldsmith, you know, Danny Elfman, even great, uh, Maurice Jarre, the cream of the crop is one thing, but there was a lot of other work that we did that musically was not really challenging, you know. Uh, the thing that made that part of it great was that in an orchestra of great musicians, you refuse to have the music sound bad. So even bad composers, we made sound better than they were. <laughs> <laughs> And that was the challenge, you know. You know it's, a, it's all credit to the musicians, absolutely. And this, this is a re something I really believe too as well. Right. A couple of years after the accident, we were, it was not a happy occasion. It was a funeral for the husband of, of John's contractor, Sandy Crescent. And of course, we all were going to the funeral. Uh, as I'm walking towards the building, uh, John and I meet in the parking lot. And John says, oh, hey, Ralph. Hey, baby, how are you? How's the hand? And I say, well, you know, it's about 85%, uh, you know, so... He says, oh, great. He says, I'll write something for you. You'll come, you know. And, and I said, John, I and 99 other people in a 100-piece orchestra have been there when one guy wasn't 100%. I said, I'm never going to be that guy. And he said, oh, yeah, baby, I think I understand. <laughs> 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 But it's true that a, an orchestra, no matter the size of it, When you're under that kind of pressure, if one person isn't 100%, everybody knows it. And everybody has to adjust and compensate, you know? Yes. And I just said, no, I, I'm not going to be that person.
approach changed? I mean, how you started to, to want to explore more composition, more writing music? Well, it took me a long time, as I say, and I'm, I'm still struggling uh, because suddenly everything that my identity was attached to was gone. So, yeah. I, but I realized that I was ready for the change. I just didn't think I could afford to do it for five years. And this was everything's way of telling me, fool, you're going to do it now. Mm -hmm. uh, and what it did was it sped up everything. It allowed me to spend time with my grandchildren uh, who were coming along. It allowed me to, to make that, to take all that time to kind of look back and see, see my whole family or whatever, and then think, well, okay, what am I going to do? How am I going to still make music? It turns out, even though I, you know, I've scored a few no-budget movies and some <laughs> television, I, I'm not... I'm not a passionate about being a composer. I, mm -hmm. I was passionate about making music as a player, but, and even though I have studied composition, it comes too easily for me out of the fingers. Mm -hmm. I can improvise, I can sit and play for, for an hour, uh, which I do, I have a Yamaha Disclavier piano, so I, it records everything I do. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I, my wife has trained me that I hit record every time I sit down to play. The, the difficult part is that out of an hour of playing, there may be two or three moments that are really special that you wouldn't get any other way that are worthy of development. You have to then wade through 55 minutes of crap to get those few moments. Uh, yeah. And then you have to do the hard work. And, and it's, uh, uh, I guess, whether it's the fact that, you know, uh, I'm, I'm too old to, to want to put in that much work or whatever it is. Uh, I, I, I have hundreds of hours of improvisations, but very few. I've written songs for my grandchildren. I've scored a couple of movies, but I don't have a major body of work as a composer. Mm -hmm. I saw a video on YouTube you did recently where you played a piece from Satie. Oh, that was, that was an interesting. That was one of my early Zoom experiences. <laughs> uh, like it, it was an adventure that I was, it, it really upset me the, in the beginning, and it turned out to be better the way it happened. Gloria Chang, who's a, a dear friend and colleague, uh, now John's uh, principal pianist, put out this email that she had found this, this group in Palermo, I think they are. Yes, yeah, so southern Italy, yes. We're going to do this uh, to honor the 154th birthday. Uh, of Satie, they were going to have the vexations and they were going to have all these pianists play it. And Gloria sent out the email and said, yeah, you should do this. And, you know, I, I don't perform publicly anymore, but it's not a difficult piece. And, and uh, it was the beginning days of the pandemic and the Zoom. And finally, my daughter, who was doing all her classes on Zoom by now, so she's there and she's encouraging me, you should do this, you should do this. So I decide I'm going to do it. I connect with these people. They send me the link, the Zoom link, and all the information, and I'm set up to go. My, my daughter helps set up the, the computer and the camera in the living room, the piano. We get the microphone. It's all going to be fine. And so I'm there, and I see that because I signed up late, there was room for me to play it once, and it was like in the last hour. So, you know, we had it playing in our house continuously. It just was in the background, all these people playing it. And I was set for the noon the next day. And I'm there in the waiting room. We're all set. We got everything. Right. I'm ready to play. And comes the time. I'm not there. You know, they don't let me in. It goes by. 
and I'm really bummed. Yes. <laughs> all this preparation and all, all this thing to do it. And, and I go, and it's one of those rare moments. You know, I, I get so much email that sometimes I miss things. Or, you know, there, there was an old uh, an email from the night before saying, we need to hear from you, you know, to, to set this thing up. And I hadn't found it. And so they, they went on. So uh, I was so angry and frustrated. I said, I'm never going to do this again. Uh, <laughs> but, but my daughter said, wait a minute. Come on, let's just play it. Just play it here and I'll, and I'll record it. So I said, okay. And I, I played it. And then after I calmed down a little bit, I thought, well, okay. So it happens. But I, and I, had, I had put it out on Facebook that I was doing this. And so I was embarrassed. So I wrote a note. <laughs> So I posted this thing. I said, I'm really embarrassed, but here's my, and I put it up on YouTube. I said, here's a link to my uh, playing it two and a half times. As a result, I think more people saw it that way because I got about a hundred comments from friends and people who who would have ever seen it had they been watching the, the, the 24 hour marathon. Absolutely. It was very, very sweet uh, for, for me personally also to, to see you playing again and see how <laughs> that, that was a, a nice gift to, to all oh, the people well, who you. Yeah, appreciate it, you. I was happy that I had done it, you know, and it was good to connect with some old friends. And uh, uh, I said, okay, that's fine. You worked also with other great, great composers. And I want to ask you specifically about your work with James Horner, which sadly is no longer with us since a few years. You, you did a lot of work with James over the years. Uh, I did, yeah, right from the, right early, not his very first, I think his second movie, uh, which was again, <laughs> interesting coincidence, I never thought of it before. I think the first movie I did with James was again, a rescoring of, of somebody else's movie that I had played the other one of. I think it was a movie called The Hand. Okay. Uh, it was about this disembodied hand that uh, went around killing people. That I never thought made that connection before. The first movie with John and the first movie with James, a, a rescoring 
a second chance to to do it. Of course, yeah, James James was a fine pianist and he wrote some difficult piano parts. But and part of the fun with James was also there would be a separate contingent of electronics in many movies, starting with like Field of Dreams and, yes. and movies where we we did basically an electronic score, uh, and then sweetened it with a with the orchestra, and that became a kind of a routine where there would be a half a dozen of us who would be many times most of us set up in the booth with the engineer, you know, going directly into the console. So we were like there in the booth with James, uh, hearing him talk to the directors and, uh, uh, and, and everything else. We were just part of that ensemble and it was, uh, it was quite special. Yes, and it's a beautiful score. I mean, Field of Dreams has some beautiful textures and both in electronics and also some more Aaron Copeland-like uh, feelings in, throughout. And there is a lot of beautiful piano piano playing over there. Because we did the electronics separately, I was able to do be part of that, and then I would also get to play the piano with the orchestra. So that was always special. I see you did a, a memorial for Morricone too recently, did you? Yes. Did you ever play for Morricone? Once on, on a Disney movie. I've been trying to find the name of it, something about the night. But, uh, and I, I basically, you know, I, I was introduced to him, but he had a, a conductor interpreter who, who did all his work for him. But it's still, it was great to be able to say that I worked with him, you know. Same with uh, Alfred Newman. I played his last score, which Airport? was Air airport yeah oh wow that's amazing i talked with with david newman uh last year his son it's what's amazing conductor very very sweet guy i mean i worked on i've worked with all the newmans a lot yeah <laughs> and tommy tommy did you know yeah. wrote something very nice for you and you played lots of beautiful yeah. solos yeah for him. lots of stuff with tom and randy too you know oh yes yeah. did you play on uh, awakenings it was you on the piano there yeah uh, that yeah. is an amazing score. I mean, yeah. it's so so lovely. Yeah, he he did some wonderful wonderful stuff. 
I have a, just a small question about the work you did uh, as a pianist for a movie called Frankie and Johnny, where you played uh, the Claire de Lune by Debussy. Oh, yeah, that's a story. Marvin Hanlish. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's, that's another story about the moments of sheer terror. I, fortunately, two days before the session, I got a call from the copyist. Marvin, Marvin Hamlish, I'd worked with Marvin for years for the way we were and all these movies. The copy said, you know, you're, you're on this session on Monday and, uh, and I see that it basically features Claire de Lune. I said, obviously you've played Claire de Lune, right? And I said, I have never played Claire de Lune. You know, <laughs> I, as part of my whole thing about my career was, and I don't know whether it was because of, of my own insecurities or whether as I want to altruistically believe that I didn't want to do the music that everybody else was doing. Mm. So I made it a point in my life never to play the War Horses. Probably the Rhapsody in Blue is the, is the biggest exception to that because that yes. became an important piece, several points in my life. But so I get the call from the copying department, thank heavens, because they, they say, you know, he's featured uh, the, the, you in this score. And I said, oh my God, I said, I got to get the music. So I get the music. I had, uh, you know, a day and a half to play through and learn Claire de Lune. And I get to the session and there's Marvin and he has brought in his favorite piano, which was not my favorite piano, which was a, a, a nine and a half foot Bersendorfer piano. And it's not the same today as it was then, but in those days, Maybe one out of 10 Bersendorfers that I played, I thought deserved to be called a great instrument. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't know whether it was because the condition they were in in Los Angeles or whether they just, they weren't maintained properly or they just weren't the piano that I, that was right for me. I'm a New York Steinway kind of guy, you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, so here I am, I'm featured playing Claire de Lune on a piano that I don't love. Uh, <laughs> and I got through it. And it turns out that everybody loved it. So, yeah. <laughs> but it was one of those moments of sheer terror. You know, it's like, oh my God, is this the end of my career? <laughs> <laughs>
the other thing I wanted to ask was about, you know, the, the Rhapsody in Blue piece that you performed for in Fantasia, the Disney movie, uh, because you are also featured the, just for a few minutes on the screen as well with Quincy Jones. Well, there are stories <laughs> about that too. I'm, I'm glad you asked. Uh, because that piece, it's been an important piece in my life in that uh, when I was studying in Vancouver, I had this, my first piano teacher and I kind of outgrew her, but my parents couldn't afford a better teacher. So I kind of floundered for a few years, but finally I was starting to work and I could contribute and pay for my lessons. And I got to the best teacher in Vancouver at the time, whose name was Glenn Nelson. And he suggested the Rhapsody in Blue as something I would like, and, and it was definitely true. And I won a contest. The Vancouver Symphony had a contest four young musicians, and the winner would get to play a concerto uh, at the, the children's concerts that they would give. The, the orchestra would go to schools uh, and perform uh, children's concerts. And uh, so I played the audition, and it was a tie. Uh, a pianist, who, a young woman playing a Mozart concerto, the, the general consensus was they had to uh, make it a tie because some of the judges didn't think that the Rhapsody in Blue was a legitimate concerto. <laughs> uh, it was still in those days. This was, the, yeah. this was like, this was not real classical music. It yeah, was Gershwin, yeah. you know. Uh, <laughs> so instead of 12 concerts, I got to play six concerts, children's concerts with the Vancouver Symphony. But it was a major event in my life, you know, 16 years old, I guess. So then, I, you know, think about it. And then years later, a... Uh, another film composer, Jack Elliott, in Los Angeles, formed what he called the New American Orchestra, mm -hmm. comprised of uh, L.A. studio musicians, and commissioned pieces trying to, to promote music that would integrate all the jazz and classical techniques. Uh, I think it was, there was something similar done in the 60s as well by Stan Kenton, right? Uh, Kenton did, uh, and uh, Gunther Schuller had a group called uh, Third Stream Music, where they tried to, to write. Uh, yeah, Stan Kenton's was called the Neophonic Orchestra, yeah, I believe. Yeah. And, and, and I think uh, John Williams also wrote a piece for, for him. Probably, uh, One of yes. the very first uh, concert pieces he wrote was, you know, a kind of big band jazz piece for, for, for Stan Kenton. Wow. In any case, uh, Jack being connected to a lot of people in Hollywood, put together a, a tour for this orchestra to, to do a, a live television show from Studio 8H in New York with uh, Henry Mancini, Steve Lawrence and Edie Gourmet, a, a vocal duo, George Burns, you know, old classic Hollywood uh, actors and people, uh, Sarah Vaughan, and they asked me to play the Rhapsody in Blue. Uh, a somewhat edited version, but I was going to play this piece live on television from Studio 8H. Over the course of my career, I've had probably every conceivable hairdo that you can imagine. <laughs> uh, and this was in the 70s, I guess, and so I had long braided hair. <laughs> Coincidentally, our live performance at Studio 8H coincided with the arrival of a remote camera uh, where the, the cameraman didn't have to be there. They could, they could control it for a pod and it would soar up and the camera. So here I am, my wife has French braided my hair and they're trying out this new camera 
and it's coming down underneath me and swooping up directly over my head and while I'm playing and I do this, I experienced my 15 minutes of fame. The next day in New York City, I, my wife and I are out, we're shopping and we're, and you know, New York City, is, it's just a madhouse of people. For the first time in my life, experienced what it was like to have hundreds of people kind of turn and focus on me and point. You know, it's like, oh, I saw you last night. You know, you know. <laughs> <laughs> we go into the department store. We're in the Bird uh, Goodman or something. It's like, hey, you were on television. <laughs> it was, it was a, it was a thrill for uh, for about fifteen minutes, and <laughs> then I went home and I cut my hair. I said, okay, that's enough. I, I don't want that anymore. So that was the second uh, event, of Rhapsody of Blue. Then Michael Tilson Thomas asked me to play it. Uh, in the Hollywood Bowl with the LA Philharmonic. Uh, and that was great fun. Uh, that was a great success also. So by the time Fantasia 2000 comes along, you know, I, this piece has been part of my life. It's, it's probably the only piece that, that I've carried with me since childhood. But this was not Fantasia 2000 when I recorded The Rhapsody in Blue for Disney. A Disney animation director, Eric Goldberg, had a pet project. It was a real labor of love that he had wanted to do for it was like 20 years. And, and Disney always told him, look, if we ever get a time when we've got animators free, we'll let you do this. Well, it hadn't happened for a long time. Then they had a movie called The Emperor's New Groove that Disney was doing and Sting was involved. But in the middle of it, they pulled the plug on the movie. They, they had to redo it and rewrite it uh, and they had 35 animators sitting around with nothing to do so disney said to eric goldberg here here's your chance you can do this 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 tribute to al hirschberg the the, the new york caricaturist uh, and so they hired bruce broughton uh to conduct and, and to put this whole together and an la orchestra they originally wanted they had tempted the piece with, I think it was Gary Grafsman's performance of the Rhapsody in Blue, uh, old, old recording. And they wanted to get a, a star pianist to play. And Bruce Broughton, uh, bless his heart, he and I went to USC together. He was, he's a fine composer. You yes. must know of his Yeah, work. yeah, he, he is, absolutely. He persuaded them that they needed somebody not only who could play the piece well, but who understood streamers and punches and, and the whole idea of playing to picture yes. because it's not quite the same. Yeah. Uh, and so they agreed and, and we recorded it at Sony with this uh, LA orchestra and that was it. Never heard anything for, for a while. And like six months later, uh, I get a call from Disney saying, remember that uh, Rhapsody in Blue piece you did? He says, well, we're doing this Fantasia 2000 uh, it's all new material, except we, we kept the, the Mickey Mouse thing and we kept the Effie the Elephant scene from the original Fantasia. We've been, we've been testing it in front of audiences. And the moment the elephant thing comes on, we lose the audience. And they, they're, they're pulling their hair. They don't know what to do. Somebody remembers that Eric Goldberg just did his Labor of Life. And they said, I love it. They said, what if we put the Rhapsody in blue in that spot? They did it, magic. They say to me, look, we're, we're going to premiere this live to picture with the, the London Philharmonia Orchestra. 
uh, we're going to travel you know, Carnegie Hall, the Royal Albert Hall, the Theatres of Saint-Élysée, and the Orchard Hall in Tokyo, and then back to Los Angeles for New Year's Eve of the millennium. He said, are you interested? I said, are you kidding? <laughs> <laughs> so kind of Rhapsody Blue around the world. It was terrific, but it, it gets better. It keeps getting better. So first of all, they've got my recording of the Rhapsody in Blue. I get a call uh, again from Disney saying, so we're going to re-record the Rhapsody in Blue in London with the Philharmonia uh, in July. Would you like to come, <laughs> you know, and, and record it? Yeah. <laughs> so, so I get a trip to, to London and we record the Rhapsody at Air Lindhurst. Uh, that's the version that exists on the soundtrack album. But the other version on the movie is the version we did in London. So there are two recordings of, associated with that. So now I've done that, we've recorded, I had a great time. Come back to LA, I get another call and, and it's like, you know, we've been recording these interstitials, you know, the in, the in between movies. And I said, we recorded Quincy Jones and, and he's a bit stiff. Would you be willing to, to come and just sit behind and maybe noodle some Gershwin uh, with him? And I said, are you kidding? This is my ticket to immortality. <laughs> <laughs> So from the small screen to the big screen, you know, you did a whole <laughs> career as a movie star, we can say. So, and, and even better than that is that the Gershwin estate says, no, you can't noodle Gershwin. You know, you can't do that. So I noodled Grierson. So, I, 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 so I'm sitting there, I'm playing, I'm composing the music. I get about $35 a year uh, <laughs> for my composition. <laughs> And I get to be, and Quincy Jones says, my friend Ralph Grierson's yeah. <laughs> going to play the Rhapsody of Blue. And on top of that, and it just happened two weeks ago, after the, the, seat, after the DVD came out and after in the movie and everywhere else, I was, I was still working. And my colleagues would come up and say, you know, I've got a five-year-old. I've got a seven-year-old. You know, we played the Fantasia 2000 for them. They won't go to bed until they hear it at least three times a week. You know, 
I had all these people say, I said, okay, I'm going to be famous with these 25 or 30 year olds while I'm over 100 years old. Uh, and it happened just two weeks ago. A, a woman who, who curates a jazz series in Los Angeles sent me an email saying, I introduced my two and a half year old uh, to Fantasia 2000. And she, she said, now the piece doesn't begin until she hears Mr. Ralph play. Uh, <laughs> it's amazing. Talking about young kids, how, how do you think uh, John's music will, will will stay in the future? I mean, it, it seems like his music is very much appreciated by a lot of young people and introduced a lot of young people to, you know, to the sound of the symphony orchestra, to orchestral music. So how do you see his legacy uh, in the future? I mean, what, what will be John's legacy in the future? I can only uh, say that I have a seven and a 10-year-old grandson They live in Colorado now. Uh, they were in LA, but whenever they're with me, they want me to help pick out the Hogwarts theme and uh, and all of John's themes. They want me to teach them the, this music. So if they're representative of the, of the current crop, then that's he's in good hands. Really, I, I'd love to go on and on, but I don't want to, to, you know, to take up too much of your time. It's been so lovely talking with you, and 
I really want to thank you for, for sharing some time with me and talking about your incredible musicianship, your amazing career and your work with John Williams. So Ralph, thank you very much for, 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 for being my guest today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you. Thanks to Ralph Grierson for his time and generosity. Visit thelegacyofjohnwilliams.com for more articles, interviews, and podcast episodes with esteemed musicians. Thank you for listening. Until the next episode of the Legacy of John Williams podcast.